Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the show on the Nerd Party Network that looks at the technical and inspirational side of Star Wars and its creators. I'm John. I haven't been in the studio as I've been dealing with the aftermath of a little hurricane you may have heard about. However, we're all doing fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? And here's the second part of Mike's interview with editor Nick Anastasio talking about his time in the industry and working on Star Wars The Clone Wars. Enjoy. Okay, so so here you are. You're, you're, you're working on this show. And I know that you've said things like, you know, and, and I remember, you know, seeing some interview where Filoni was like, George Lucas came in and said, okay, let me show you how to make Star Wars or whatever, which is just kind of a mind-blowing concept. But, you know, that, that really sort of got me thinking as a, as a fan, like, what is it? What is it that makes Star Wars uh, stand apart from everything else? What is the Star Wars way? And if we just, you know, focus on the editing, like, the two things that I think of when I think of like Star Wars editing, I guess I, I kind of see it as like two different things, one with the original trilogy and one with the prequel trilogy. But with the original trilogy, I think of cross-cutting between scenes, like b- between action and, and, you know, multiple locations and making it sort of like this seamless thing. And I mean, you can take that over the, the span of an entire movie like Empire or the span of, you know, an entire climax like Jedi. But like that's always kind of like stood out to me as like one of the defining characteristics of Star Wars editing. And for the prequels, I think the thing that I think of more than anything is um, that layering that we were talking about earlier and the idea that, you know, you can do this almost like three-dimensional editing now and it doesn't have to be limited to just cutting shots together, but it can be cutting elements within a shot together. And I guess I want to know, before you worked on Clone Wars, before you, you sat down with, you know, George Lucas and, and he told you what it meant to edit a Star Wars mo- movie or how to edit a Star Wars movie, what was your perception of Star Wars editing? That's a very good question. Um, I think it was probably even well into the time that I was already working at ILM and actually while I was working even on the, on the first two prequels, um, it was probably... I would say much more, I don't want to say basic, but overall an impression of Star Wars editing being about characters, which which is not actually, I don't think I was necessarily wrong, but then I, I got to understand how that comes about. You know, um, it, it, it felt to me like, and this is going to sound corny and cliche, but, you know, it was another place where the old star wars tagline of it's about the story first seemed like like it was apparent to me like the story always and the story as told by the characters when they when they when they narrate when they speak the story to you felt like it was leading everything Uh, and i think on a semi-conscious level i was aware that that was probably that was that was kind of where the editing came into place. That that's what it was. Then there was, you know, of course, things that are a little more uh, not technical, but just just in the, in the sense of like I was aware of the the style of shots that George liked to use, you know, and how they varied from. Oh, I know he likes to use he likes to have these types of wide exteriors. He likes to have you know these types of medium shots when he's indoor. Th- those types of things, right? But um, it's really, I think, to me, if I, if I, if I, if you'd asked me, I, I would imagine at the time before I got started at, at animation, um, what is Star Wars editing? I would have probably said, well, it's it's what really helps the characters tell the story. And again, to the extent that it's not to say that I, I was right, but that I understood how that is articulated once I, I really peel the layers, or once George uh, took us to school. It, yeah, it, there is there is certain choices you make. Um, that are where the the editing has to be transparent. It has to be invisible. It has to actually liberate the plot point so that it advances itself without drawing your attention to the framing. And and that's the thing. The, the thing is, the framing, the composition, the cut point are very important. But in the way that they're supposed to to 
remain in the backstage and not make you aware that the story is edited, but be very fluid and propel things forward and communicate. So, I, you know, it's basically, um, I mean, George, I, a lot of the things, if I had to put it in a nutshell, that he would teach us in the first year and a half, two years would be boiled down to guys, you're trying too hard. You're overthinking this, you know, it's, and, and it, you know, it needs to be, it needs to be simpler, shoot it simpler, compose it simpler, you know, let, let this line of dialogue work for you. Don't, don't, you know, don't try to, don't muddy it with a weird camera move or a bizarre cut point, you know, let just help, help the, the, either the plot point through what is being shown visually or through what is being told, help, help that. Don't, don't try to do things that are going to hinder that. That's like really interesting. And I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I like just hearing that little thing, right. Really sort of helps me wrap my head around what I've been watching for the past, you know, 35 years or whatever it is, because he's not showy at all. Like it's, and, and that's one of the things which I think makes it hard to define what star Wars editing is, what it is that makes it special because, you know, you look at something like, let's say a Tarantino movie or whatever, like you feel the cuts in, in a, in a good way, you know I mean? Like you're supposed to, and those are the types of movies which I tend to gravitate towards because I don't know. I can see the process, I guess. Whereas with the Star Wars movies and with George Lucas movies in general, like you're saying, it's invisible. And yet I imagine, especially, you know, knowing that, that Lucas is such a, a fan of editing and, and that's his favorite part of the process. Like there's probably a ton of work that goes into making it invisible. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, you know, again, there, there's something to be loved and fascinated by either way when it's, you know, the craft, when you do, when you do what you're supposed to for the right reason, when it's motivated is always, is always, at least to me, fantastic and, and worth learning um, and attractive. In the case of Star Wars and George, definitely it's about, it's all about being seamless. The craft, the, be the better Star Wars is created and told, the less you think or you're aware that you're watching a cut piece of film and the more you're just into the story. Um, and, and again, I think that this is where he, if I, if I had to synthesize, summarize what he was teaching us, it was about that. It was about, it was about trusting, trusting the story point visually or through the dialogue and helping it rather than, than trying to add on layers of makeup. You know, and um, if, if you look at where George comes from, you can understand, you know, how a lot of that came to be. George, um, once he decided he wanted to go into into a creative line of work, he basically initially wanted to, to go into photography. Um, and I remember a conversation where he talked about, I think it was, uh, he was with Walter Murch early on, you know, when he was young. And Murch showed him, um, a piece of film that he was cutting. And George basically said, I, I looked at that, I looked at actually at the work print. And what clicked in my mind is I saw still photographs, but where each one had a rearranged composition. And I became aware that by shooting film, I could shoot photographies and change the composition of each still from frame to frame. And that fascinated me, right? And so from there, you can connect the dot. I mean, George has always had a love for design, um, structure. He loves architecture and, and interior design. And you can see how that ties in. But to go back to film, um, that you can see the connection with editing because, for example, one of the things, I mean, I studied him in order to learn when we would go into the cutting room after screening our episodes and we would watch, we would actually start from the beginning and basically hit play. But at that point, when we were in the screening room, he would just watch it as a viewer, just soaking up the story. 
once we were in the cutting room, you could see him, his eyes, you know, when you, when you look, when you look at a piece of film, when you look at a screen, your eyes will naturally go clockwise. And of course he is actually aware of it. So he would not only just do it intuitively, but he would consciously like rotate his eyes and look at the frame to see if what was going on 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 screen was actually conducive to the normal movement of the eye from frame to frame from shot to shot i mean that's like some some next level stuff right there i mean i guess it shouldn't shock me because i mean yes he is like the greatest storyteller of our generation and all that good stuff and he sort of like defined you know movies for whatever but i mean just hearing something like that i mean that is like next level like nothing's an accident is it i mean it's like all very much yeah and and he you know and and what he would often do you know we learned the reflexes right we so he and he you can you can feel his concentration when he when he would do that um, and he gets very quiet and, uh, he won't, even if the, if, if there's a scene that has a big problem or an, an entire act, um, he won't, he will never, he will never make you stop it halfway through, or he'll watch it all the way through because he, he's trying to analyze first at the, at the micro level. And then he's going to start to like step back and go, you know, more macro, more meta for what the problem is. And usually, what would we would know? We would know. Well, a lot of times we knew ahead where where we had problems. A lot of times we didn't know what the problem was, and that's where he would come in and help us. Um, and we can talk about some examples in particular. But but what would happen when we had scenes that had problems or acts is he gets even quieter, and then he'll watch it, um, and then it'll end, and there's there'll be like. 10 20 seconds that go by and he's not saying anything and you can tell he's just thinking and then he would go go back 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 and we and we would joke about that that, that was the george thing. he'd be like go back 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 play and then he would watch it a second time and sometimes a third time and still not say anything and you can tell he's just trying to to process you know again st- stepping back from from like the individual pieces now to to the bigger and bigger pieces um and his process to well sometimes he would just after having seen it once twice three times he would say okay the problem is this and then sometimes if it was more complicated he he would basically say his process to try to get at the root is he would say okay now we're gonna go we're gonna go through and then as as he hits problems he basically starts to just at first he just has you take away the things that don't work he doesn't care how that's going to break the cut he doesn't care what kind of gaps you know if there's a a block of shots where the the visual pace of cutting uh, flows well the dialogue makes sense he'll leave it as soon as there's a shot which visually feels like it cuts weird to him or the dialogue feels like it's out of place or bad he'll say stop take that out and then you get to a place where, so you have a cut that is basically has, I don't want to say broken. I mean, it is. And he, and he would always say, he would say, no, don't be scared. We're going to break it, but then we'll make it better. Um, and so we would, we would basically take out all the pieces. And then, and then the, way he, the reason why he does that is because once, and this is, again, only when offhand by watching it, he kind of has an idea that it's not working, but he's not sure why. So then as he goes through, he'll take out the pieces as he, as he sees them that jump at, at, at him as being bad. And the idea is once you're, you're, you're done, you're left with a cut, which is incomplete, but all the pieces you have are good. So then you watch that and it's easier to say, okay, well, this piece, we have an A and a D and the A and D are both good. Now all that's left is just to figure out how to get B and C, and and it makes it's easier because if you if you if you just see what's good at A and what's good at D, creatively you can start to think, oh well, to get from A to D, we need to have the characters do this, and we need to have them say that, and all of a sudden you figure it out, you B and C. Um, 
So, so is that something like the, these techniques that that he sort of you know introduced at least for you? Um, are those techniques which you've adopted for yourself in stuff post Clone Wars? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, when uh, when I first started back at ILM, um, there was a couple of projects that I was involved with. I I worked on. A uh, Chinese project, actually, uh, for the Wanda company. We were doing a, a short film uh, for them for their this theme park that they were developing. Um, and then I also worked on um, uh, Luc Besson's oh, Lucy yeah. um, um, on the 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 final the final sequence that sort of like the Big Bang sequence. And Luke had actually Luke was a very interesting, very interesting director to work with. He came several times and we worked with him closely because he had this really kind of very elaborate, sophisticated idea in his mind, not unlike George, he knew exactly what he wanted for the Big Bang, but he had no idea how to visualize it. So the reason why they got me on that project is because of my experience. He wanted to work with us, with Rich Bluff, who was the visual effects supervisor, and myself. And our task, he gave us three and a half months, was, you know, he kind of sort of brain dumped all these ideas about, about what, it, what, the, what the Big Bang, you know, sequence was. But then he said, I need you guys to shoot something. Give me a cut that I can, that then, then once I have something to look at, I'll know, I'll know where to go from there. But at first I need you to come up with something that I, that, that I see because I can't visualize it. I know it in my head, but I can't, I can't see it. So we had to come up with, with, um, with a scene. And, and I definitely used a lot of what I had learned um, on that. And I think another place where I did is probably I worked on Ant-Man. Um, and, and again, um, we worked on the scene where Ant-Man um, shrinks and he shrinks so far that he can't stop shrinking and he almost kind of loses himself in this microscopic, you know, atomic world. And it's, it's very similar to the Lucy, uh, the Lucy experience where Marvel kind of knew what, they knew exactly what the beat was in the script, but they had no idea how that should look visually. And so they came to Russell Earl, um, the supervisor and said, Again, this is the script. We understand narratively what is supposed to happen, but visually we have no concept of how that translates. So we need you guys to work on it for X amount of weeks, come up with a cut, then give that to us, and then we'll tell you yay or nay, change this, make this longer, etc. And so, again, because of my experience, I got to work with Russ and a couple of other guys who had actually also worked on, um, on uh, Lucy, um, and we came up with concepts for, for how to cut, and I applied some of those rules. And then... Um, last example is Agent Carter, um, season one. Um, they got me and Rich Bluff, uh, the super, the supervisor who had done Lucy, uh, they, they paired us up again. Marvel wanted us to help them with season one. They had, they, it was a very Clone Wars like experience where they, they wanted it to feel like it was top notch quality, but they had three months no time to turn out, you know, and, and they had never done anything like that. And they said, okay, we need you guys to, to kind of take the leadership on the look and feel and pace and cutting of the, the big sequences, you know, our hero sequences, because we don't know how to execute that. We've never done anything like that. So um, it was a, a really small team because we need to be very light on our feet so we can move fast of like four or five people. Um, and we would get together. We would kind of do a huddle every morning, you know, at, at Rich's desk. And kind of say, okay, there's the concept. Rich, Rich would go on set and kind of find an idea of what they were shooting, and also have the scripts. And we would come up with ideas for how to how to assemble it, how to cut it, um, to give it what they were going for in terms of in terms of story and in terms of quality, but also be able to practically do it in the time that we had to do it. All of those examples are uh, are very good movies or TV shows. And uh, I mean, like what you're saying with Agent Carter, I mean, it definitely did have that sort of like big screen feel to it. I'd like to think so. And, and I think if you compare, unfortunately, we weren't able to to take them up on the offer to work on season two. And I, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but if you look at um, the way season one translated on the screen and the way season two translated, I, th I think you can definitely see the difference. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, 
you you gave me a couple of examples uh, of of episodes of the of the Clone Wars, which uh, you wanted to you know kind of like point out um, in terms of you know technique or or whatever. Um, so uh, let's 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 just go go through them one at a time, and then you can you know tell sure. me uh, what we should be looking for. So the first one is season one, episode three, which is a uh, shadow of malevolence, right? Yep, and uh, specifically act three you know there's there's a scene um where before we go on i'm sorry because that's a question which i have is again you know the translation from tv to you know what we're seeing here like obviously there are act breaks in uh, on television and but when you watch it like on on home video or on netflix or whatever it's seamless like unlike most shows it does not cut to black and then cut back in when you were constructing mm-hmm. these things were you conscious of the act breaks did you edit them with act breaks and then just you know take out the black like uh for home video or how did that work yeah we we actually we were conscious so we had um we basically uh had a separate timeline um, for each act, so we so we that way we knew, you know, that that an act started at point A and ended at point B, um, and it was a reminder for us that 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 was that that was it. But at the same time, and that that came from from uh, Jason, the, the 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 senior you know story editor, and and Dave. Um, Jason was very very particular about making sure the goal and again we didn't always succeed but the goal that we always aimed for was it should it should work 100% both ways um it should it should cut and it should feel like a natural conclusion as we come up on the commercial break so you shouldn't feel like the cut of the that last shot um is kind of a, a middle of an action but at the same time it should also be able to be edited back to back with the cut from the the first the opening shot of the next act and that should also feel completely smooth. Um, I think where, and I think we all agreed uh, on that, where we came up short a lot of times um, is, I would say the, and that would frustrate Dave so much, the end of our shows. Um, because we tried to jam pack so much feature pacing, so much happening not action in terms of fast but so much stuff going on so much story into our episodes we often found found ourselves in a place where and we never we were aware that that was happening we didn't want to do it but we would kind of we kept pushing 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 until the point where we would have very little time to end and so if if there's if there's ever you know i think a source of frustration in terms of editing and pacing in that sense was kind of where a lot of times we felt like and now we just have to go to credit mm-hmm. and it's over but it feels like it should have another 30 seconds or another minute, you know, where we kind of just wind things down and slowly pull you out of the story before we get the ta-da. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one other thing, just in relation to that, not the ending, but the beginning, you know, each one had that, uh, that, you know, opening narration with the sort of the montage and everything, but, Correct me if I'm wrong, but did they not release episodes, I think, like on StarWars.com or something where they took off the montage and put on a crawl instead? Am I making that up? Am I misremembering something? It's possible. I mean, if if they did, I'm not aware of that. That's not Um, something that you guys were doing then. Okay. All right. No, never mind. No. Never mind. And one other question I have before the, this, because I, I do, you, I thought of it when you were talking and I'm sorry, just one more question before we get it. No, no, it's totally okay. Fine. Um, you mentioned Walter Murch and he directed an episode yeah. of the show and, yeah. Yeah. you know, as someone who studied editing and film school and all that good stuff, you know, he's written what I think a lot of places use as like the textbook for for editing you know in schools and a lot of people consider him on a theoretical level to be like you know one of the the top editors ever Uh what was it like having him involved with the show especially as an editor yourself Uh, he he is first of all let me say walter is a genius (laughs) I mean, he, he literally, and this is not, this is not being, this is not a, a, a kind of a paraphrase. He, he literally is this genius uh, level. Just, um, just to for- speak to that, I once went to a seminar that he held at some 
like cultural convention where he gave a lecture on Bode's laws of spheres and harmonies or something like that. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. Uh, but he and he's not. But it's it's funny. You know, he walks in a room and um, he. And I mean that in the best possible way. He it almost feels like a James Bond villain just walked in the room, you know. He's got because he's got this he's got this black turtleneck, and he's got this he has this very deep, slow, articulated voice, um, and and then he begins to speak, and and you just you're just kind of just content to listen, right? Um, the the and and yeah, he he imparted. Um, some of his, in terms of editing, just strictly, um, I, I, you know, the the most fun actually, I conversations I had with Walter Murch were, um, he 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 cut when he was directing, he cut with Jason, um, uh, but we as editors we went to lunch um, a bunch of times, and um, the most fun conversations I, I you know I was kind of privy to with him. Uh, were the ones where he talked about things that had nothing to do with film even or or let alone editing but um but he he talked about the way that from the the script from a script any script and the type of dialogue and narration he he had this he had written almost like a a, a mathematical formula that allowed him to calculate the total running time that his edit would be. I love that so much. <laughs> and 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 he and he did it. He and I, one of the directors actually put him to a challenge because he said, "Okay, to really test that, I'm I am not going to be satisfied with you giving me the total running time ahead of time for your script. I'm going to give you my script, and so you don't even know how I plan to shoot it." And and I want you to calculate the running time and not tell me. It's like a magician's trick. And then I'm gonna go and I'm gonna shoot my episode and assemble it, and we'll see if it'll if it if it'll be if it's close. And it literally came to frames. That's how that's how accurate he was. So um, that 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 was pretty pretty impressive. Um, but uh, uh, there was also another kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. And that's something that every editor does. It doesn't matter if you're Walter Mersch or if you're, you know, in film school learning editing, we, everyone, every editor does this thing. Every editor has your, you know, you, you just assemble two or three shots and, you know, you're playing your cut and you're looking for, you've assembled your shots long, right? So now you're looking for the right cut point. Um, to, to make the, the cut and you know we all do it where where you know so then you'll do it and you kind of like you'll let your finger hover over the over the the, the, the button and and then you basically where you let yourself guide by the instinct of where you would expect if it was already edited to cut and then you'll you'll hit you'll hit the button on that point and we all I don't know why but every editor has this thing where they feel they, they know that they didn't invent that, but they feel like, hey, you know what? At some point, I came up with this great idea where I kind of, I kind of just instinctively feel myself, you know, be led to the cut, and then I cut. <laughs> and it was, it was really a crack up the one time we were at lunch, and then Jason and I, you know, are listening to, to Walter, and then he, he's like, you know, I developed the merch. <laughs> And Jason is like, "Oh, really? What? What's that, Walter?" And he's like, and he basically proceeds to describe exactly that. How you know, I, I sort of feel the cut where where I would normally intuitively cut, and then I just I just push the button there and edit. And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> really?" I, I guess in his defense, I did read about that in one of his books first, and then was like, "That's a genius idea. I'm totally gonna do that." The merch <laughs> method. There you go. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Anyway, okay, enough enough about Walter Murch. Um, back to to uh, the um, I'm sorry, I always get the malevol- the shadow of malevolence. I always get the, the malevolence yeah. episodes confused. So, okay, season one, episode three. Okay, act three. This is like uh, the the final battle, essentially, right? Right. It's the final battle where basically the the. You know the Republic forces are going to do a bombing bombing run on on this big ship, the Malevolence. 
Um, so I'll try to keep it, you know, shortish. But the the idea is we we of course, and, and this is early on in our shows run. So this is the part where this is the time when we think we're being clever and we're we're not that clever, or or we think we we think we're being subtle, I should say, and we're not subtle at all. So we're thinking, oh oh well, you know, it's the the republic are doing this bombing run on this giant ship it's kind of like the rebels doing a giant run on the death star so you know what we should do we should we should actually shoot it like that and cut it like that so it'll be like this really awesome homage to the end of new hope and we do and again you know we're we're not subtle and we're not very clever at that point but we, we are very dedicated so we we take great pain to to shoot it in a way that's accurate right it's all, all the pieces are right. And we put it together and we watch it and we're like, it doesn't work. Why does it not work? It worked in New Hope. Why does it not work? And it doesn't work. And so finally, Dave did the smart thing at that point. I mean, he, all, he did it throughout the run of the show, but definitely early on. If, if we were really in a jam, Dave would say, you know what? George will know. So let's not, let's just, we shouldn't be afraid to show him something that's not working. As long as we tell him, George always has, you know, good faith to say, okay, well then, then let's figure it out together. So let's, let's not, let's not, let's just wait until he comes in. So we did. And we, we had other problems with the episode. So this turned into, this turned into, I I think it was my longest, my longest edit session. We were in there from like, I want to say around, 10 a.m. until about 1:30 a.m. Um, but it wasn't just all because of Act Three. Um, in fact, in a way, Act Three ended up being kind of not the easiest, but not not the most complicated, you know, thing to sort out. Um, because the, the the problem was actually pretty obvious once once we got George in there. So you know, we get to Act Three, and we and Dave tells him, okay, so you know, it's not working. We don't know why because we did it by the book and it's still not working. So George says, all right, well, let's watch. So we watch it and he did what I described earlier where he basically watched the whole first time, didn't say a word. Then he said, okay, go back, play it again. I think he watched it three times. And then, and then there was this kind of smile on his face. And I remember, and he turned to Dave and he said, well, I can tell you why it's not working. And then Dave goes, well, that's why we have you. Um, and then George goes, I mean, you did it like the Death Star, the Death Star run, right? The trench one. And then Dave goes, well, yeah, that, that was kind of, yeah, that's what we did. And George goes, yeah, but the Death Star is big like a planet. And you cut this in the same amount of time it takes for them to blow up the Death Star. But this is just a spaceship. And so basically, the pacing was all wrong because our beats... We had the, we had the same number of beats as you had in New Hope, but he you know that take place over something that is not even a fraction of the size of the Death Star, and so it it felt wrong because we were without being aware we were stretching the distance and the time to a place that t- took you out of the story. <laughs> so what we did is he changed he changed this you know the the in in that act. You have this whole thing that happens um, outside. Well, before they're doing the run of the ship, where Grievous fires the, the the beam, and that actually almost they have to kind of climb up, and some of them escape, and some of them don't. So that kind of cuts cuts the run in half, and it happens, you know, before they do their final pass of the ship. We used to have this whole thing, including that, take place around the ship as they basically are flying and we had to keep them flying around the ship over and over and over and over and it was just throwing the whole pacing off so that 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 was that was that experience interesting i mean i i can definitely see you know i mean i took note of the the similarities to the death star run and you know but just the idea of because i mean you as a viewer, you know, you just think well it's a big ship you know oh it's a big death star but you don't really think about scale and I would have never thought that it would impact it that way, but it it, it does totally make sense. That's that's interesting. It's interesting. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. So so jumping ahead a couple seasons to uh, season three, episode four, uh, Sphere of Influence. Now this is the one with 
George Lucas in it, sort of, right? And yeah. and I and I I like this episode a lot. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, one of the things which I see throughout Clone Wars is there are a number of episodes which definitely take cues from movies. You know, obviously the Godzilla one is a that's an obvious thing, but there's like a lot of like noir in there. There's a lot of westerns and mm-hmm. and and a lot of Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Hitchcock. And watching this, I don't know if it was just specific shots or whatever, or maybe the story on the whole, or the way that cer- certain scenes were constructed. But I really got a North by Northwest vibe from this thing. Was that intentional? Or? No, you. Okay. Intentional. Right. Yeah. Cool. No. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, the reason I picked that one is because there's several. Um, obviously, th- there's some editing things that I think I can point out, um, but also uh, I think that it's it's I like this episode a lot because um, it's an episode that's not um, one of the big sci-fi, you know, action lightsaber fights or big space battle. Um, it's an episode that um relies on a lot of elements that George liked and was trying to bring forward in the prequels. And in my opinion at least, it's an episode that uses these elements and that really works. And so I think that I like to to show that episode to people who are interested in the Clone Wars as a kind of a proof of concept of how the prequels worked when you took the elements of the prequel, you know, done right. Um, it can create a, 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 a story that has the politics, that has the intrigue, and you know, but in a way that actually is compelling, that that makes you want to find out what's going on, what's the mystery, you know, what's the what's the payoff. Um, as far as what we're talking about in the editing, um, it's funny because you earlier you talked about Star Wars editing being about the cross cutting, um, and this episode again, it's an. A, to me, it feels very classic Star Wars because it relies a lot on cross-cutting. There's, I, I don't want to use really A and B plot, but a little bit because that's kind of a Star Trek formula. But it does have sort of two groups of characters who kind of grow, go, they're together initially and they go on, on separate, separate sub-stories that tie together. Um, and you cross-cut. Uh, and that was a very Star Wars thing. But... Um, we had a major problem in the way we had it set up. And that also actually will, will illustrate the specifics of animation editing. Um, because so initially um, we, in this episode, um, the blue guy, Baron Papanoida, who's, you know, the George character, um, his two daughters are kidnapped, right? And they're kidnapped by, by the separatist. And the idea is that they're trying, they're trying to, they kidnapped him so that they can blackmail him into joining the separatists and leaving the Republic. Okay. So the way we had it was they were kidnapped together and they, they were held together in one location, which was the, um, the trade Federation home planet. And so then we had plot. Let's, let's call it a and B plot for the sake of, of simplicity. We had the a plot where Ahsoka with this senator who's from the same species goes to find out where they are. And eventually they, they wind up on the Federation, the trade Federation home planet. Um, and they end up finding the daughters and freeing them. And at the same time, Baron Papanoida is trying to find evidence that it was the separatists and the, and the trade Federation that orchestrated the kidnapping. And that leads him to Tatooine and, and, and try to figure, figure out who the kidnappers are so that he can basically call them up almost as witnesses to, to verify that they were hired by the Trade Federation. And so, and we were trying in that sense to kind of do our own version of the Star Wars cross-cutting. And it wasn't working. Um, and when George came in and we watched the episode uh, with him, he started, and we. This is one where we actually um, applied the technique that I was telling you, where he started to to take away the pieces that 
felt off. And by doing that, what we realized was that really wasn't working was by grouping the two daughters together, we made all the relevant, because basically once we took out what didn't work, all we had left was the Ahsoka plot. And the Tatooine stuff was all gone. And so, and it, again, that, that illustrates what I was, what I was telling you about earlier when you do that. So then, so then the pieces click in place and you're like, Oh, okay. And, and George basically said, what's not, what wasn't working was that really at this point, all that drives the story is where are the girls? And so the, the other plot of Baron Papanoida trying to find evidence that the trade federation orchestrated the kidnapping is not strong enough to sustain an actual cross-cutting in A and B. Um, you have a very, a kind of a weak, a weak B plot and a, and a strong A plot. So to correct that, now that we've taken out the pieces, you're like, okay, well, we're gonna start to put back the pieces that we can use. And, and this is something that you can do in animation, definitely a lot easy, easier, more easily than you can do in, with live action because <clears throat> The ones that we could plug back in as they were, we did. But then the other ones, we would jerry-rig um, just to indicate that we were going to now change the story so that the girls are separated. And one is taken to Tatooine and the other one goes with the Trade Federation. Um, and that way, it gives both of our teams something to do and to get at in a prize. Um, and then another thing that we figured out in taking out the 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 Tatooine part once we all all only had the 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 part with Ahsoka we realized that just by looking at that the time that it took for her and the senator Chuchi to get to the Trade Federation home planet and the time we had to spend after that showing and explaining how even though they were in the heart of that place they weren't just killed or taken captive themselves um, was too rocky and took too much, too much screen time. So, which is part of what also threw the balance between that plot and the B plot. So that also motivated then the decision to change the location from being the Trade Federation home planet to a ship controlled by the Trade Federation, which is much closer than their, their home planet. Um, and then we, again, put the pieces back knowing what we wanted at that point, the ones that we could use as they were, we did. And editing co goes into that at that point because we look at the shots we have and we, you know, again, we are in a realm with animation where you can do that. You can kind of reshoot your movie as you go, but you have to be, and George is definitely conscious of trying to do things smartly and not being wasteful. Uh, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So we, we at that point, we look at the, the choice of, of uh, uh, shots we have, angles we have, and we say, okay, where are the ones that as much as possible we can use as they are or minimize, you know, the amount of changes we're going to have to do around the background, the assets, and so on to say, well, from the planet we went to the, the, sh the ship. Um, so, and, and knowing, you know, how editing works helps because you can say, okay, well, we need this type of shot to go from, from this cut to that cut. Um, what do we have that will work for the editing? And that also kind of fits the, the practical bill of, of minimizing the damage of changing the assets and changing, you know, where we are. Um, so that, that, that was kind of what happened. on this. So point. is that a case where you figured it out that, that you needed to change it? You figured that out like at the, the story edit, or was that something that you've, figured out closer to the final at the yeah. story edit yeah th those types of changes where, where we're talking about at that point i was i was i was full story editor and and you you are not able i mean yeah you, you wouldn't be able to at the point where you do the final the color what we call the do the color pass you you can't if there's if something happens where you realize oh crap we're in the wrong environment we need to switch from a planet to a ship then something went really 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 yeah. drastically wrong um because to change at that point where everything has already been animated and lit to change that will be a much bigger deal. So how, I guess, I guess this is a two part question. First part is like when you have like, well, how much of that episode, like what is it like 22 minutes long? Somewhere, somewhere around that. Yeah. 22 minutes. Was okay. How, 
much of the of that time had to be re reanimated uh, after your that cut. Well, so it's not it's not technically animated because we do so the layout cut that 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 pass you know the the, the cut gets locked in layout with George at a point where. So we have we have 3D assets of all the characters of all the objects, but they're very very low resolution, right? Um, and actually, to the point where if you t talk about the rigging, the rigging basically the rigging is the, the term that we use for the skeleton of of a 3D object, whether it's a character or anything that gets animated or that's going to get animated. So the rig that we that is used for those at that level and layout is very primitive. Um, it allows you to do simple things like, you know, move the arm, um, move the head left to right, maybe a little up and down, but it doesn't have any, any sophisticated animation. And again, the reason is so that if there's a major change that needs to happen, you can do it without, without the bigger impact of applying that bigger change to something that's, that's been fully animated to a, a full rig. Which which is much more complex and will break in a lot more ways if you have to do a big change. Would would this so, be like the equivalent of those uh, unfinished episodes that they released online? Okay. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, those those are basically layout. We, we call them we call them story reels or layout reels. Um, and so so you know it's not fully animated because you you wouldn't be even before going to, to rendering it would be too much of a of a too big a deal to to make that that big a change on something that's been animated even it has even if it hasn't been rendered yet but um i would say that on a on an episode like this one and they weren't all that significant in terms of the changes but on an episode like this one it probably warranted a 40 45% reshoot of the, of the episode at at that layout kind of blocking you know stage so okay i guess um, this would be the second half of that that question would be um how much longer in terms of time does does it take to create that episode when you need to make a change like that that's a juggling act so the you know the ideal scenario was you know in the in the budgeting and scheduling of the show the producers starting with george and working our way down from to, to the our executive producer and our line producers um had built in a um period of time i think it was about i want to say two weeks roughly two weeks um maybe 17 days something like that of what we call retakes which is basically the reshoot period to make changes based on 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 that editing pass now and and the again the idea is everyone is supposed to work with that in mind um uh, so to not to not to try as much as possible to create something which won't require obviously to go over that and even it's it's our mandate when we are assembling the the show to again that's why that's why they would drive really how important it was to try to get it right for george because it's not you can't just get away with saying well let's just do kind of a half-assed thing and kind of get the point and we'll go from there no it has to, it has to be we have to we we to we have to keep moving forward now of course sometimes we we had situations both in 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 at that point and sometimes in final final lighting especially as we got better and better at, at doing the show where george would be like it's perfect we're good move forward um and then and then those are bank because then that that two weeks is bonus uh, and you use it because then there's going to be the other times where you know you watch it and then george says well we're gonna have work to do <laughs> and you know right away that then we're going to be over the two weeks um and they, they they always tried and did a good job at squeezing it in so it would be as close as possible we would never run such an amount of of over you know like go from from two weeks of retakes to a month uh it would never happen um so we would try to to, to squeeze it in so because of that were there ever um uh, cases where the episodes were produced or, or at the very least like finished like out of order um i don't 
I don't think that there were that there was ever a shuffle that was done as the result of that specifically. Um, episodes were shuffled, but to my knowledge and to my memory, never because oh because of a of a of a situation where we ran out of time or we took too long, and so we said, okay, well, this one will air then later. We'll bump it up a season or, later or not even that. But like, let's say you're working on, and I don't know what the workflow is like, but you're working on. I'm guessing a couple of episodes simultaneously and you know, one which was scheduled to finish first ended up taking a lot longer and didn't finish until, you know, one or two episodes further down the road. Does that make No, I mean, we, we actually, um, I usually, uh, we got, when we were, once we got at full speed, uh, I'd be, we would each, Jason and I would each be working on about seven episodes at a time. Uh, and, um, and, we yeah we but we never there was never a case when when one that was supposed to finish earlier ended up being pushed down and then was swapped with another one we we always everyone was very conscious i mean because we we were in a way in a pocket and a bubble that many tv shows are not because we were george was our shield and and he always said we have to do we have to do it right first but at the same time we were still doing a tv show and especially once we got a network, uh, we had a schedule to keep. And and I think, and again, that that's that's sort of outside of my purview. I think that was more that was the production side. But they had they committed to specific episodes and a lineup very early on, which meant that it's a little bit like the studio kind of announcing a release. Although these days, I guess release dates change back and forth. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but when the studios commit to, to kind of a, of a release date and everyone waits for the movie to come out that date, then you're kind of, that's it. You have to, you have to deliver. Um, so, so we, we, yeah, we, we stuck to our order, um, throughout. Now there's another thing, uh, one last thing I want to, I want to uh, point out about this episode, which I think is pretty cool before we, we move on. Um, if you look at, it's not the last scene, but it's towards the end of the episode. Um, it's on Tatooine. It's the scene where, um, in Mos Eisley, Papanoida and his son go in the cantina with Greedo, who they're kind of holding hostage at that point. And they're trying to see if they can use Greedo to get Papanoida's daughter without a confrontation, which almost works, but then, then there's a shootout. Kind of an okay corral moment in the, in the cantina. So... To give you an example of what I was talking about, um, this very fluid, very organic, creative mastering that George has of composition, which we, which he taught us, and by that point we we were already we were getting it for sure. Um, where basically you, one of the tricks is the way that you compose your shot. You know, you're you're aware of how the eye is going to move and where it's going to end in the frame. Um, so you compose your shot for where you want your eye to be drawn to, and then you have to be aware that that will also lead into the next shot. And so be aware, be, make sure that, that that cuts well with where you want your eye to be drawn in the next cut and so on and so forth. So an exercise you can do, um, and you have to have, you have to watch it kind of either on your phone or your tablet, something small enough that you can see the whole frame and kind of have your finger, you know, in front of it you know, without being like in the middle of a big screen. Um, but if you, if you go to the head of that scene, uh, around the moment that Papanoida, Greedo and Papanoida's son get to the, to the bar. And if you follow throughout and you put your finger where, where the center of attention, you know, where your eye gets drawn around the end of that scene and you leave your finger there and you watch the whole scene all the way to the end of the confrontation, you'll see that, even though the shots are very different and you go from a kind of a talking head moment to action, wild action where you go back and forth and the camera moves, the characters are moving from then to the end of the scene, you can leave your finger and not move it. And it'll always be exactly where the center of attention is in the frame, no matter what the shot is. And even though the shots are very different um, and it's, it's a, that's actually, it's a pretty good, um, and simple representation of the type of craft and editing techniques 
that we learn from George for, for, for cutting. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty crazy. I, you, you hear about that, like with um, Mad Max Fury Road. I don't know. I heard a thing where like, basically mm-hmm. he composed like every shot, you know, with, you know, in the center of the frame because he didn't know how they were going to be cut together. And he wanted to sort of maintain that, that thing that you're talking about. I mean, that's, Mm-hmm. That, that that level of detail you know is 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 crazy especially for you know something which is you know going to be on the cartoon network you know that's <laughs> that's that's pretty crazy that's that's pretty crazy i'm gonna have to go back and watch that scene now and uh and, and try that out for sure yeah okay so so we have one more episode here uh which is uh season six episode five or lost missions episode five or whatever you want to call it an old friend and um specifically the essentially the last scene in the in the episode which is the uh yeah the snow snow bike chase snow chase yeah the snow chase yeah, um, so that one is kind of a, just a, a, of an internal little thing as an editor for me. Uh, it was a kind of a cool accidental moment. And that, those happen all the time. You know, it's organic stuff. Um, I, um, at that point, um, we, so we, we, I had, I had, we had moved um, temp music editing and sound effects into the layout phase. So we were doing that as well because uh, we had decided that that could help um George visualize and feel the 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 episodes um even in that early stage but I was I we I didn't have any sound effects or any music yet um this was I just I just gotten the raw footage from the director's team to assemble that scene and a lot of times um I'll play music in the background and it's not music to edit to because you don't want to do that. You don't want to be influenced by something, or at least I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a good thing um, unless there's a specific reason why you should. But generally speaking, you want to stay away from that and kind of just stay with the, 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 just the shots and the images at that point. But I'll just be listening to music in the background just to have, to have music. And it so happened that I was playing some uh, uh, James Bond music. And as I was starting to put it together, the opening track from Quantum of Solace, which I think is called Time to Get Out or something like that, I started to play. And and again, I was very conscious. I wasn't cutting to the music, but the, the pacing, the energy of the music started to, so not the melody, not the beats, but just the energy started to motivate. It kind of got me in this particular groove, which at the time I was completely not conscious of what I was. I was I was aware that the music was was sort of like creating this this impulse or something. You know, I was getting onto something about the way that I wanted to cut it, but um, not aware of what I was doing exactly. Um, and. So and I so I put that track in the loop because I I felt like I was getting in a really nice groove um and kind of getting ideas for where I wanted to go intuitively without thinking about it. So I said, okay, just follow follow that and do it. And I think I worked for maybe two, two and a half hours and assembled the, the scene together. Um and and then so then two things happened, which is which are again it, it to me it's 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 interesting because it shows how organic the process is also. Um one I watched it assembled without any sound. I, I stopped the music and I just watched it. You know, I even turned off the dialogue, the, the, the scratch dialogue track that we had and watched it because I wanted to see how it cut. I wanted to make sure that I hadn't been influenced by the music in the way that, that did make it made it not work or did something weird. And one thing I noticed was that there was a natural, uh, a weird kind of contraction, expansion, contraction, expansion rhythm that set in where I would have three, four shots, sort of a reset moment that breathe. And then I would have three, four shots where all of a sudden the action compressed in time and then reset. It, it, it basically was almost like breathing kind of, you know, very short breath and then one big exhale 
and then go go back in and each time i was going back into sm to smaller cuts more more compressed cuts they were getting shorter than the previous the previous one and that that was kind of this pattern that had set in without me consciously trying to do it which i thought was was really fascinating and then um and then i actually played and that was the thing that really tripped me out i played i went back to the beginning and i mean i was just playing the music on itunes on my other computer so i literally just reached over and then hit play on itunes and hit play on the avid and then watched the scene with the track and it even though i had listened to the track in a loop for two and a half hours so not at all in sync with what i was cutting it played almost beat for beat to the track wow and and it was it was weird it was so weird um because i never did that kind of stuff that i called i called the director down and i was like dude i just finished brian brian kill mcconnell such an awesome director to work with and i was like check this out so i did it again and he was like did you did you cut it to the music i said no i didn't i was i had it in the background on a loop but i didn't i didn't have it in the in the avid or anything and he was like that's so weird and so he went he's like man that that that's so trippy that's so cool and he left and he comes back 20 minutes later and, and he's like do you mind if i bring the team so we can watch it because it's so trippy i just want i just want them to show it to, to see it and i said no that's fine so he did and then he left again and then came back another half hour later with dave and was like okay do it again play it again for, for dave and it, it was just it was just kind of a, a a funny a funny process of discovery for how different parts of the medium interact to create to create the finished the finished piece that's cool that's cool i mean it is a very well cut together piece for sure you know i mean it totally works as you know an action sequence as a chase sequence it's really really cool yeah and it's very you know it's very yeah. short it's it's one it's another it's funny because like there's i think it's probably the same for a lot of creative processes in in the moment it felt to me like i was creating this like half hour epic epic you know action thing right and then you watch it and it's just like a couple of minutes and then you're done. yeah no i mean that's that's definitely how it works i mean anytime that i've edited you know movies or whatever you spend like eight hours on it and then you're like i finished i did the whole thing and then it's like five mm -hmm. minutes long you're like oh cool. yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh that's that's really really cool um Okay, one one more question that I have for you. You know, I mean, everyone always talks about how, you know, George Lucas is an editor at heart and all that stuff. And I'm just curious, like, does he, will he ever just sit down at the Abbott himself and start typing away? Or is it the type of thing where he's always sitting over someone's shoulder? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you even know this, but maybe when he's just, you know, working on his whatever at home or whatever does he does he just mess around with the avid or is it the type of thing not no knowledge okay no i, I think and, and you know i i couldn't tell you you know for certain but i think that he really i think i think he at this point it or when i was working with him it really helped him to be able to have the step back you know being able to watch and be conscious of the editing but at a more abstract yeah. level where it doesn't involve the how am i going to do that yeah, yeah. step it's just it's just it, he knows what needs to be done and it's up to me or jason or whoever's cutting to figure out um how to do that um, and I think it's also, there's a, um, there is a, uh, part of George, um, not related to his age. Cause I think 30 years ago, it was probably the same just from his generation where he comes from as a filmmaker and actually the generation that inspired him as a filmmaker. That's very old fashioned. Um, and it is something that I think Jason, the other editor, really respected because Jason, who taught me a lot on the Clone Wars, himself comes from a very traditional Hollywood background in terms of the separation kind of of church and state mm -hmm. and film. 
Um, and Jason would like go into these really, really fascinating discussions, teaching me about the history of editing and how in old Hollywood and the silent era, um, editors and directors, the roles that they had. And it wasn't, it wasn't an ego thing or a power thing. It was just how the roles were divided in a way that made them a lot more equal. Um, but again, not from a power standpoint, but from, from, the, from the, the, the filmmaking structure. Um, and so, and, and definitely him and George were very compatible in that sense. And even though ironically, George is an editor at heart in terms of how he thinks, in terms of how he approaches storytelling, he's very conscious of that. And I think that George would probably never even have thought of actually cutting himself because in his mind, he has that very old traditional filmmaker approach. The director directs, the editor edits. Yeah. We each have, we each bring our part of the craft and my job is to figure out how to do what you want. And, and, and that's it. And, and then that, that was it. But then he did it a second time. The second time I was there, or actually I was in the next room, but I heard, I, I, I heard the screams and basically, you know, that that's when, you know, Jason lost it. And, and George would have had the same approach from his standpoint saying, you know, I'm not, it's not, I'm not going to step in. It's not my job to edit. It's your job. And he, I think even though, again, he thinks like an editor, but he's been a director and a producer for so long that I think that he, he wouldn't, he would not think to do that. Well, I, I know I, I've, I've, I've kept you for much longer than I intended and I apologize for that. But uh, just so, so much uh, interesting info and everything like that. I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to, to talk to me because it's super fascinating and I feel like, you know, I've learned a lot more about uh, the process than I knew just an hour ago or whatever. So, so thank you very, very much. Um, thank you for, for having me on to talk about it. It's always fun to share. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's great. Yeah. And um, I mean, of course, anytime you want to come back, you're, you're always welcome. You know, we, we, we love having you here on the show. So I, I, I love being there. So yeah, <laughs> be careful what petition you throw around. I'll be, I'll be loitering. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, love to have you. You know, maybe maybe we can talk about uh I don't know, the next uh JJ Abrams movie since, you know, what would that be? I I've, <laughs> I've been under a rock the last week. I don't know what you're talking about. Yep. yep. We, we we watched Book of Henry for for nothing, you know? That's okay. It was <laughs> it was still very interesting. Yeah, so we watched it for we watched it for Trevor. There you go. Like, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you, you very much once again. And uh, yeah, yeah, seriously, anytime you want to come back, we'd love to have you. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thanks again for listening to our two-part conversation with Nick Anastasio, sharing his insights and experiences from his time with ILM, Lucasfilm Animation, and working on The Clone Wars. Gentle reminder, get your copies of Splinter of the Mind's Eye ready as we embark on our special chapter-by-chapter -chapter analysis of Alan Dean Foster's classic almost sequel, to Star Wars. You can reach the show at thenerdparty.com slash contact. You can find us on Twitter at joinnerdparty. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenerdparty. You can find Mike on Twitter at mumbles3k. You can find him co-hosting his other shows, Commentary Track Stars, over on commentarytrackstars.com. You can find him over on the Trek FM network, co-hosting The Edge, a show about Star Trek Discovery, and Stage 9, a show that he and I co-host looking at the work of Star Trek creators. And me, you can find me as Kessel Junkie on your network of choice. You can also find me co-hosting right here on the network, Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing. You can find me over on Trek FM, co-hosting the aforementioned Stage 9 with Mike. And you can find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.